Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and this cold weather is the perfect excuse to join me at the very cozy Bacchus Lounge in Vancouver's Wedgwood Hotel. That's where I met recently for a great talk with my friend, my fellow lawyer, and my fellow food enthusiast, Jeannie Smith. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef Demoni. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome to your Friday, and welcome back to the Chef Timoni podcast. Or if you're new here, welcome to the show. I'm really glad you found it, and I'm glad that you're here. Chef Timoni, so that you know, is all about food, but really it's all about people. It's about people and their stories. And today we've got a great guest who's going to share some great stories with you. My guests tend to be, most of the time at least, chefs and lawyers. And that's simply because I've done both of those jobs over the years. So many people I know are from one group or the other. They're a chef or they're a lawyer. Jeannie Smith, who you will hear from in just a couple of minutes, falls into the lawyer category, but she's also got a fascinating food background, both from work experience in the industry and because of her lifelong relationship with food that really began in this back-to-the-land childhood that she had on Vancouver Island. You're going to hear about that, too. Before we get to today's interview, though, just a few housekeeping matters to take care of. I'm happy to say that I can now identify the cookbook author that I've been hinting at for the past few weeks. So earlier this week, I met with and interviewed Chef Andrea Carlson of Vancouver's Burdock & Co. about the fantastic new book that she has released. It's called Burdock & Co., Poetic Recipes Inspired by Ocean, Land, and Air. Andrea and I had a great talk just before her restaurant opened for the evening. And then after that interview, I actually got to sit at the bar seats which are across from the open kitchen at Burdock & Co. So I was looking into the space, looking back at the line where I used to cook years ago, and I sat there and enjoyed a couple of incredible dishes. I had this grilled leek dish that came with a mushroom XO sauce and walnuts and some lemon. It it was incredible. And then there was a dry-aged duck breast special that came with some pickled grapes. Again, really, really delicious. And with that food, I had a really interesting glass of wine. As I've said before on the show, I'm nowhere near a wine expert, so I rely entirely on the experts at the restaurants. And what Burdock & Co. provided with this meal was a glass of wine. It's called, the the wine itself is called Alea Jacta Est. The producer is Lacoste, an Italian producer, and it uses 100% of a grape varietal that I did not know before and that I still can't pronounce, so you'll have to look it up. But apparently it was Napoleon's favorite varietal. Anyway, all I can say is that this wine smelled and tasted like rose petals. Really, really interesting and delicious. Burdock stocks a completely natural wine list, and I really encourage you to check it out. It's a lot of fun, and it is delicious. All right, to the interview now. As I've said, my guest is Jeannie Smith. She's a fellow lawyer and a fellow food industry veteran. We actually share some experience at the same firm, although we were there at different times, and that's Whitelaw Twining. We both worked in private practice at that firm. Jeannie now works at the Federal Department of Justice. You'll hear a little bit about her current work at the beginning of today's interview. Before law, though, and as you'll also hear today, Jeannie worked extensively in the culinary world. She started out at a place called the Atlas Cafe on Vancouver Island and then moved through some larger operations, including Milestones and a Joey restaurant here in Vancouver. 
As you'll hear, Jeannie and I were of the same mind that working in the culinary world is really an experience that tends to stick with you. It's amazing how culinary experience, it gets ingrained and it doesn't seem to leave, right? No, it, to- it doesn't seem to leave at all. And, and I, I think I do it sometimes even at home. We'll have people over for dinner and I'm, I'm serving people wine and I'm on the you know, side of them. And people are going, you know, I, you can just sit down and I can grab my own wine. Beyond her industry experience, Jeannie shares thoughts today on an absolutely fascinating childhood on Vancouver Island, and she grew up there in a family that took on hunting, organic gardening, food preservation, food smoking, even some commercial fishing. And so with that background, it's not really surprising that Jeannie has such a love for food. We talked today as well about some of her recent food experiences. One is preparing a huge vegan Thanksgiving feast for her family. And I also asked Jeannie for her thoughts on any similarities she sees between the two worlds that we share, between the legal world and the culinary world. Jeannie's answer is important. There are definitely some good similarities between these two worlds, and there are some not-so-good similarities. If you look at the culinary world, particularly around developing your career as a chef and the legal world, there's not a lot of women. There are women, but they're a minority in both professions. Toward the end of our talk, Jeannie shares some spots to eat in Vancouver, some great recommendations. And actually, earlier in the interview, you'll hear about one in Whistler as well. That is definitely on my to-check-out list now. Jeannie also talks about a milestone birthday celebration dinner that she had recently at Burdock that sounds like it was truly spectacular. All right, that's enough for me to the interview now. Join me at the Bacchus Lounge in Vancouver's Wedgwood Hotel. Here's my talk with Jeannie Smith. Thank you very much for meeting at the end of a busy workday and uh, for being on Cheftimony. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. We're sitting at sort of tucked away in a back corner at the back. Well, I guess we're not in the Bacchus Lounge. We're within eyeshot and earshot of the Bacchus Lounge <laughs> and, yeah. and tucked into the restaurant. But happily, they're bringing us drinks here. So it's all good. Let's start with the law part of the interview because we, we share a little bit of history there in that we worked at the same firm. But I'm curious about your your new job at the Department of Justice. What can you tell us about that? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I work at the Department of Justice. And so that is the uh, federal government. Government department, and I work here in the Vancouver office. And I work in one of the civil litigation sections, which is called Aboriginal Legal Services. And so I deal with issues of Aboriginal law, uh, particularly in the litigation side. So where I get my work is usually when um, the Attorney General of Canada, or sometimes it's referred to as Her Majesty the Queen in our pleadings, is involved in litigation that has something to do with Aboriginal legal issues. And then I work as legal counsel for the Crown, for the Government of Canada in that litigation. So you're acting for the Queen. I'm acting for, I am, I am acting for the, for the Queen, although I, I, you know, a caveat, I am a, I am still a, a junior lawyer, so I, I don't think I'm ever going to get a call from 
Her Majesty, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Fingers crossed. One of the things, and I want to talk a little bit about the private practice, because we both now have this, have made this shift from private practice into the in-house world or government world, and we both worked at Whitelaw Twining, uh, you much more recently than me. One of the things, frankly, that I miss about private practice, there are a few, but one of them is client interaction and also taking clients out for drinks for dinner because marketing development is a big part of the job but what I noticed when I shifted into the restaurant world and you've got restaurant experience as well is that I actually preferred being on the working side of that relationship which is to say I had more fun as a cook than I did as a guest it was great as a guest but I preferred it as a cook do you have any thoughts on that did you have any similar experiences yeah definitely I think I still will I still have situations where I am a guest or I'm supposed to be a guest, particularly in private practice. And I see myself automatically shifting to hostess mode and, you know, collecting people's drinks and then passing them to the servers and being some kind of weird go between because my natural instinct was to serve, particularly when you are marketing clients and trying to show them a good time and thanking them for their business. I wanted to host. And so I did definitely miss it sometimes. And that isn't something that you do really with government in-house. You don't. One of the perks definitely of private practice is uh, more of those social gatherings. But I did sometimes get my roles confused between I'm a guest here and wanting to sort of clear plates or make sure that the bread was on the right side or anything like that. Yeah, it's amazing how culinary experience, it gets ingrained and it doesn't seem to leave, right? No, it, it, to- it doesn't seem to leave at all. And, and I, I think I do it sometimes even at home, we'll have people over for dinner and I'm, I'm serving people wine and I'm on the you know side of them and people are going, you know, I, you can just sit down and I can grab my own wine so I it it does get ingrained uh, and I do I did love it I do still love that that hosting and serving side so I do it when I can (laughs) fair enough well let's go back a little bit in time to when you were in the industry in the culinary world and in a few minutes I want to go even further back and talk about your childhood experiences with food but but take us through how you started working in the industry and where that was on Vancouver Island yeah so my hometown is was uh, the Comox Valley and so my first sort of restaurant experience was uh, working as a hostess at the Atlas Cafe. So I was 19, I was newly 19, and I had just finished my first year of my undergraduate degree and and moved back home for the summer and started hostessing at the Atlas Cafe, which is still a fantastic restaurant in Courtney. If you haven't been, you have to go. It's a it's a staple in in the community, quite frankly. And it's not a cafe, it's a it's a full-on restaurant and it's spectacular. So I was hired as a hostess and so I would work the front door and and that was my first sort of in to the the restaurant industry was working as a hostess. And what was the interaction like with you mentioned in our email exchange a chef John and what was your experience like working with the chef and the interaction between the front of house the back of house how did that play out? Yeah, so it was really surprising. I didn't expect it at all when I started the job, how much interaction I was going to have with the chef. I sort of had this preconceived notion of what being a hostess meant. And right away, the first thing, the first part of my training was Chef John, and his name is John Fraser. He's still the head chef at, at Atlas, was talking to me about the importance of seating the restaurant and the importance of controlling the flow. And so he trained me very quickly 
every time I would seat a table to tell him how many menus are open. So that meant how many people in the restaurant he had to still wait to order so he knew what was coming up. And as that number crept up, he would say things to me like, okay, hold the door or only seat every five minutes. And he would give me direction. And it really was his restaurant. And I learned right away to respect him in that. And uh, that was the first time I learned the, sh- the term uh, chef may I. And if he didn't answer, I just stood there at the line until he would say my name. And he, he knew I had something to tell him, but I would wait until he said, said my name. But it really showed me how important the integration between front of house and back of house was, which continued through my experience. For sure. It's, it's bringing back a memory from my time staging at Bouchon in Vegas. And at the beginning of service, we would get, we in the kitchen would get a piece of paper with a number, just a single number written on it. And I finally asked what that was. And it was the number of people who were seated and looking at menus. And of course, everything queued from there. Yeah, right? so, exactly. Yeah, really, really interesting. And obviously crucial to the proper interaction, the proper operation of a restaurant. Did you have any, it doesn't have to be at Atlas, could be anywhere in the culinary industry, any thoughts on what has traditionally been a divide, I, I think, between... I think many people do, between front of house and back of house. Any instances that played out and thoughts on how that might change? Yeah, I, I definitely, I wouldn't say so much at Atlas, but in sort of my, some of the restaurant experiences I've had at larger restaurants, there could be some butting of heads that I would witness sometimes between front of house staff and back of house staff. And, and, and it was always between people who hadn't really developed a relationship with one another and a respect for one another's job, which in my opinion always takes a conversation and so you know I'll say at maybe the height of my industry career I knew I had a great relationship with the chef because he could yell at me and say brutal things to me and I could do it right back to him and we knew we were fine because we had developed that rapport and that respect of one another's jobs and that if I didn't do my job well the restaurant wasn't going to work and if he didn't do his job well the restaurant wasn't going to work but I definitely have seen that divide. And I think there's also a bit of a glamour divide, too, that the server side or the front of house side is more glamorous. They're, they don't have different remnants of food and sauces all over their, you know, chef whites. They get to look a certain way in the front of house, which is different from back of house and uh, the jobs as well. And so I would say that I have, having never worked in a back of house, I have more respect for back of house workers than I actually do front of house workers. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Because I have seen the the dedication, particularly in the non glamorous side of the job, that I just have the utmost respect for. Yeah. Well, that's great to hear. I, <laughs> <laughs> I feel much the same. Although I will say, I had one experience years ago at Burdock where the team was down a server like really down a server and I did some pinch hitting and did some food running which was the first time I had done it in over a decade and it came back to me really sorry the ability to do it did not come back to me really quickly what came back to me really quickly was how hard it is it's actually um, and I think there's probably no I know there's a bit of ego in a lot of ego in the kitchen about back of house being harder more challenging, more demanding, whatever. But yeah, front of a house has its demands too. Oh, I mean, front of a house definitely has its demands. And there is an art to 
a lot of front of house work, particularly in the customer is always right type of work. And I have more stories than I can count about having to keep a smile on my face when guests would say outrageous things and, and that skill as well. So absolutely still tons of respect to, to front of house staff. I just, you know, maybe it's because I've never worked back of house that I have that additional respect. Uh, I've seen the work that goes into that. So. Yeah, there's a lot of work. And in most cases, I think this is still the case generally, they're, they're not paid as well. Like that's just a plain that's simple also, truth. Yeah, that's also something that I saw, which I particularly in um, tipping structure. And I've actually seen a lot of really interesting um, articles from different food scenes, Vancouver food scenes, Toronto food scenes, New York, about how to tip. How do you know if you're tipping and restaurants that do shared tipping around like all staff, front of house and back of house staff, or shared tipping just front of house staff, or is it tips based on percentage of sales of the shifts you work or is it the number of hours there's there's a lot of different models but i think for the most part it's safe to say that back of house workers are just not making tips uh, the way that front of house workers are they just aren't and that doesn't mean that their work Um, is any less valuable and I don't think that that is recognized by the consumer that would be my one of my feedback to being a guest is recognize that tipping for service is not just the front of house and understanding those layers of what makes a restaurant come together I think that's often not shown it's sort of behind the curtains uh, but that's half the beauty of it at least half. Maybe seventy, maybe seventy-five percent. You know, at least half for sure. Tell us about. Was it your next stop? Because I know you worked at Joey's here in Vancouver. Was that your next stop in the in the culinary scene? And, and how did that differ from what I'm guessing is a, a smaller, quieter vibe in Courtney? Yeah, so I actually worked, uh, so I went to university in Victoria. So between working at the Atlas and then moving to Vancouver a few years later after my degree, I did work at Milestones, which is also, you know, a more corporate uh, restaurant in Victoria. So I did work there as a server, but only for a short period of time, only for about six months part-time. So I wouldn't say that my experience there was very long. So my next more invested stint was definitely at Joey uh, when I came to Vancouver. And the biggest change right off the bat between the two is obvi- is just size. The Joey that I worked at, unfortunately, isn't uh, open anymore. It was on Granville and Broadway, but it was at least four times the size of the Atlas Cafe in Courtney. So it meant four times the staff, front of house and back of house, four times the flow of guests. It, it, just the sheer size was was different. The amount of people that you're interacting with was massive, particularly coming from a small town and moving to Vancouver. The city was a pretty big, like, big adjustment on its own. Oh, it was a huge shock uh, at first. So that was part of it. Do you have thoughts on the independence versus what I would describe as the corporate? And I think you used the term the corporate restaurants. I'm frankly divided on the issue. My heart and soul likes to support and is most intrigued by the tiny 
independent, scrappy restaurants that are doing super creative, interesting things. But they really struggle. They're almost more art projects than they are um, businesses, unfortunately. They get a lot of, of course, credit in the culinary world. But I think maybe unfairly the corporates don't get as much credit as they should because they do provide training grounds. They do provide jobs that are at least closer to nine to five um, so people can have a bit more of a life make a little bit more money anyway I'm rambling on and starting to answer my own question so what do you think about independent versus corporate yeah I love this question and I've actually I've heard you ask a few other guests on chef Demoni about this question and I think it's really interesting because particularly with my upbringing which I think maybe we'll talk about later small town farm community um, firm to table and individual small restaurants that are full of passion and uh, or maybe a mom and pop shop have such a a space in my heart. I really love those entrepreneurs. I love what they create. I love the beauty and the art of food. And I think that those are the places, those smaller places are where that can really thrive. And so I want to support those places. I love supporting those places and I want them to continue to grow. At the same time, and maybe I'm biased for having worked um, at Joey for as long as I did, but I continue to be a guest at Joey. I love it. And I think there's something really valuable about predictability and knowing knowing what you're going to get and having it be comfortable and great. I know that when I go, so I go to Joey on Burrard pretty often, I would say, I know that when I order my meal there, I know what I'm going to get. I know it's going to be delicious. I know the wine that they have. I know their service standards. It's going to be great. And I, that is the experience I'm going for, and I'm going to get it. And I also know that the price point and the availability of those types of restaurants make those experiences more accessible for more people. And I think that is such a beautiful thing because... I think food brings people together and I love when people come together around food. But I also think there's something to be said when, you know, um, I I think I mentioned to you I'm going to trial. My trial's in Kelowna. So I have to be away from home for a few weeks. But I know that if I need a bit of comfort, I can go to the Joey in Kelowna or I can go to the Cactus Club. And there's comfort in that. And so in my opinion, I think that both the individual small restaurants and the larger corporate restaurants both have their place in the culinary world. They both fulfill really important roles. And I think one of the things you had mentioned is the jobs. Uh, I know I saw so many people at Joey be able to get culinary training, get their red seal at Joey. On the front of house side, they got to get business degrees, get leadership training. That's a spectacular opportunity. But then I also think of places like Burdock & Co. and the amazing sustainability work that they're doing with Firm to Table, with the low waste, with uh, the type of products that they bring into their restaurant and making sure that sustainability and ethically sourced food is something that we are pushing, I guess, like the industry towards. And so that's why I think they both have their role. One thought that just struck me, I love your answer. And one thing I I have thought a lot about is what the bigger corporate restaurants can do for their employees, for, I think about it mainly from the back of house, from the cooks and what they can learn and develop. I hadn't really thought about the front of house, but that's great that those opportunities 
and the funding exists. But the other side to it is something else you said, which is they bring people together, there's a consistency, and they can have large groups together. So maybe from the guest's point of view, and I think, I think and hope this is probably true, they can be a stepping stone. So if you're new to restaurants, if you're new to dining out, if you're just starting to explore, they might be a comfortable stepping stone that may direct more people to the independence. Do you think? I hope. You know, I think that's a great point. And I think you're totally right. I think sometimes smaller restaurants can often be equated with fine dining. And sometimes that can be intimidating or uh, people will look at a menu and not know what any of the food is on it and will be intimidated or scared to ask, you know, what is this word? And so I think, yeah, maybe places that are larger or more corporate are a great stepping stone. And I will say, you know, in my role at Joey in the later part there, after I moved from serving, I moved into management and my role was guest service manager. My job was literally to plan and execute particularly larger parties, control all of the reservations and build a relationship with regulars. And it was all about making every part of that, you know, booking the restaurant, being at the restaurant comfortable and easy um, for people. And that was something that I took a lot of pride in. And I loved about my job was making people want to come back and want to go out dining. And so, yeah, maybe it is a stepping stone. It's kind of different from litigation, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, I don't really get that kind of satisfaction with litigation. You know, they say in litigation that if you walk away from a settlement and nobody is, everybody is equally unhappy, then you know it's a good settlement, which is the complete opposite standard that you have in the restaurant industry. industry. I want everybody to be blown away and... Super happy and eager to come back. Exactly. And uh, usually what I get, you know, what you want from clients in litigation is, thank you so much. I hope I never see you again. Never see you again. (laughs) What matters to you now, Jeannie, for restaurants? Having worked, of course, on that side, having uh, been a guest, continuing to be a guest, what, is there something that matters the most to you? Is it the whole package? What draws you to restaurants now? That is a good question. More and more what is drawing me to restaurants that I haven't been to before is um, sustainability, I will say. I think that is is most indicative of a value shift for me or uh, more or growing awareness in myself. So that's something that definitely drives me towards a restaurant is sustainability, but also service standards. So I want to know that people that are working for that restaurant are being treated well and people behind the food that are coming to the restaurant are being treated well. So I think that is something that is is very important to me. And so knowing things about certain restaurants, having worked for them, I trust going there. Um, smaller restaurants, I try and do a little bit more research there. But I will say I was talking to my partner about this the other other day. We, we went up to Whistler a few weeks ago, and we went to Basalt, which is a great small place. It's a sort of charcuterie, salumery uh, restaurant, but they also do a spectacular chef's meal. It's a three-course chef's meal that they change seasonally. And it was one of those experiences where I walked away and I said, this was perfect. This service was excellent. They gave us exactly what we wanted. They asked us the pace of the meal we would like. Do we want to be here for a longer period of time? Are we on a, you know, do we 
have a time commitment issue? Uh, what type of a food do you like? There was a chef's menu. We could experiment or do something comfortable. Uh, the wine selection was local and spectacular, and the server knew everything about the wine. And it was just one of those start-to-finish, beautifully designed menu, spectacular, warm, West Coast, woodsy ambiance, beautiful food that was just so great from start to finish. So that was a really nice treat. I have never been, and, and in fact, I, I hadn't heard of the restaurant. I don't know it at all. So uh, it's now on the list for sure. It's right in the village. Highly recommend. It's, it's a small place. And it's spectacular. You know what? One, what really stands out to me from your description there is the server asking you about what pace of meal you want. I've never had that. The closest I've come is if you go to a place where you might be, where the timing falls. Say you go early to a place, so it's six o'clock. Then I will have servers say, "Are you going to a show? Are you going to? You know, you might be going to whatever something at the Orpheum that starts at eight. So they just want to know." when you have to be out the door. But I haven't had, independent of that, a question about would you like quick, leisurely? I think that's a great idea. I think it's great for servers to do that. But I think even more importantly for guests to share that with your servers. Um, like, hey, we have a show at 8. Or as you know, my partner and I, hey, we're here for a random spontaneous weekend. We have nowhere to be. Right. We can stay till closing. And so describing a little bit about the experience that you're looking for allows the server to show up. Also, in some of my experiences, will allow the chef to show up. I've been in situations where I've said, you know, chef's menu, do what you will and get these beautiful creations or little snacks and allow the restaurant, allow the servers, and allow the back of house to step into what you allow them to step into. But it's a little bit on the guest, too, to share what you're looking for. I think that's right. And this was a question I had toward the end of my detailed interview plan. But what else can people do? And that seems to me to be the crux of it, is better communication with your server. Would you say that's the best piece of advice for people on how... Because there's all sorts of commentary and heaven help us Yelp and Google reviews on restaurants and what they can do better what what do we do better what as guests yeah I think that there should be a little bit more responsibility on guests to communicate what you need particularly in um, even something like a reservation sometimes you'll see a checkbox that says you know okay reservation for four and it's a birthday well fill in the comment box whose birthday is it is there a particular reason you're celebrating there? It's their favorite restaurant or they love this dish or all of those things that give the restaurant the opportunity to step up. I think communication is so vital. You know, as I said before, food brings people together. Their servers are not just there as a conveyor belt to bring the food to you, engage with them. That was the my favorite part of my job was getting to know my guests, some of whom I'm still in touch with. Amazing. Uh, still email, um, you know, whereas it became really wonderful friends just by creating that relationship. So I would encourage guests to be willing to create relationships. I think that's great advice because people in the hospitality industry, by and large, are there because they love hospitality. 
right? So they want to provide those spectacular experiences for the guests. By and large, they're not there because they think it's a way to get rich. Um, so they're there for other reasons. So the more you can give them to work with, I think that's great advice. Give them, give them more tools to work with. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, now let's move further back because I want to talk about also on Vancouver Island and your childhood experiences with food. And it sounds idyllic to me. So your parents... <laughs> <laughs> fished commercially, your dad hunted, your mom had year-round organic gardening and mm-hmm. smoke sheds and meat hanging, and tell us about that. Sure, and, and I mean, like, full disclosure at the top, when I was experiencing this as a young child growing up in it, I just thought that this, sure, is, this, how, is, this is how everybody lives. <laughs> this, is, this is how everybody gets their food, and so no, only now as an adult, and particularly in the last few years, looking back, have I only realized, oh my goodness, this was picture perfect, this is unbelievable. But where I grew up, so I said I grew up in the Comox Valley, but I actually grew up in Merville, which is neither a town nor a city, it is a regional district, and if you, <laughs> yeah, if you stay on the highway, you will miss it. So it is north of Courtney, but south of Campbell River, and I would categorize it as a farming community in a lot of ways. There's a lot of massive acreages there um, where there's some dairy farming, so for dairy land and island farms. But then you have a lot of more smaller, independent farmers, which produce a massively bustling and abundant Comox Valley Farmers Market on Saturdays, which I would highly recommend. But essentially, it was just a very small town and... There are actually books on the sort of the catalyst of Merville, but it is a little bit of a draft dodger town. Mm. Oh, so it's be full of great characters. Really great characters. A lot of uh, what my mom calls the back to landers, which I think my mother would probably categorize herself as a back to lander. And people who are just very eclectic, very community-driven, and care a lot about the land. And so how that showed up for me with my parents, my parents commercially fished in um, the early to mid-80s on the West Coast, and they have abundance of fishing stories. And then the commercial fishing aspect stopped a little bit when I was born, as I understand it. But my dad continued to hunt, and my mom grew our vegetables in a year-round vegetable garden that didn't require a greenhouse. You just, we harvested all year, and our friends did the same. So all of our friends grew vegetables or had chickens or turkeys or something. And when you have dinner at your friend's house... Most of the food is from them or their neighbor or somebody they know. And that was just normal to me, um, which it's definitely not normal, but it that was normal to me growing up. It, it should be, or it would be lovely if it was more normal, wouldn't it? Big time. I, I grew up in Thunder Bay. We always had a garden when I was a kid, but year-round farming, not an option. Yeah. Um. I, I will say my mom's year-round gardening and Full, full credit and kudos to her is uh, she will say it was a lot of from her mentors who she will always quote Steve Solomon but the techniques of winter harvest vegetable gardening a lot of them I'm going to say my mom has developed pretty fantastically which literally involves no greenhouse you have a raised bed there's a foot of snow on the ground and you go and harvest vegetables fresh from the ground that aren't frozen and are still living in January. In January. 
It's pretty amazing. It really is. And to the point that your mother has actually published these techniques now, right? Yeah, she did publish the techniques in a, in a calendar format quite a few years ago now that helps people create that garden month to month. So rather than it being this massive task that you have to do, you get to go, it's October, here's what you do in October. Um, but that calendar stemmed from a course that she taught um, in the in the Comox Valley. Uh, there used to be a group of people in the Comox Valley, and there was this group and Seed Saturday of people that saved seeds and taught gardening techniques. And Mom was a part of that, and from that became came the calendar and the year round gardening, which. I did not appreciate as a child or as a teenager. My chores were not cleaning my room or doing, you know, unloading the dishwasher. It was like, can you go put the mulch on the garden or like save the seeds of the kale and take the reme off? Or, uh, you know, I didn't like those tasks, but. Are you kidding? Because I'm thinking kids now among the hipster foodie set would like pay for those experiences. And exactly, and I didn't take advantage of it when it was happening for me, and that's you know big regrets on on my part. But I uh, I didn't get the gardening gene, unfortunately. I just got the eating gene, and so my mom will tell stories that she would look down in the garden and see leaves rustling, and then her sweet pea crop was gone because I had gotten hungry. <laughs> after school so that was where I fit in what was the sharing like in the community Jeannie was it um, you mentioned like dinner or sharing meals with other community members was it more formalized than that in any in any way or was it just a community supporting I guess um, I've heard of um, really just more formalized program food sharing um, almost like an early CSA program or was it just a community eating together yeah, definitely. It wasn't formalized at all. It was just a community eating together. And so, you know, it would be as simple as somebody would call and say, all of my apple trees exploded. How many buckets do you want? Or we would do the same thing with we had a plum tree or mom would have a spectacular carrot harvest or my dad still to this day when he fishes, he fishes to give it to friends and family but it was never formalized. It was just sort of like I remember I would come home from school one day and there was somebody in our yard just like harvesting food. That was a normal thing to have happen or we would do the same thing. It was just sharing the bounty. I think that was is the best way of putting it is we're growing things. Come eat it, which was lovely. Lovely. It, <laughs> super absolutely. lovely. Absolutely. It sounds super lovely. And it's, it's interesting. I, th- I think people who haven't been on farms or orchards – and I'm still, I'm no farmer or vegetable grower at all, but I've spent a reasonable amount of time visiting farms, and I'm still always shocked at the volume of produce that can come out of a relatively small area, right? Mm-hmm. So I totally understand if the apple tree is booming, of course you have a, a, an order of magnitude more apples than you're ever going to be able to deal with. Um, does does your dad still hunt? He hasn't hunted for a few years. As a child, though, I remember eating venison all the time, venison sausage, venison roast. One thing I never did, though, which my parents did, was eat the heart. 
of the venison. So both of my parents had very spiritual relationships with food. They still do. Um, if you ever watch my mom garden, she will. She speaks to her plants and she blesses plants and blesses seeds. Um, and my dad does the same thing uh, when he's fishing. Uh, sometimes he will catch a fish and he will say, this fish is not ready to be caught and he will put it back. Uh, and it's a very spiritual ritual I think for for him in that sense and the same with deer he would say this is not my deer and he would wait for a particular deer but when that would happen my parents I guess as some kind of a tribute and I don't know how this started but the day of the kill would cook and eat the heart and that's something they still both talk about as part of their spiritual connection to food. And I'm sure that has something to do with why I resonate with food on such a community level and a gathering level. But uh, yeah, that was something really special for them. Well, let's move, let's jump into the present day and tell us what role food plays in your life now. And particu- I'm curious particularly for your thoughts in the context of being a busy lawyer and what food can and does provide in your life in that context? Somewhat, and it's a little bit cheesy to say, um, but I've said it many times to many people, I consider food to be my love language. And so when when I'm meeting new friends, I like to do that over food. When I'm feeling particularly low or I am overwhelmed with the job, um, particularly as a, as a young lawyer, I think law, no matter how long you've been doing it, can be a very consuming career. Um, yep. <laughs> exactly. Um, but as a, as a young lawyer, you know, there's a lot of moments where it can just be so spectacularly overwhelming that one of the ways that I do comfort myself is with cooking. It's my hobby. It's something that I get to experiment with. It's a way to take my mind off of things. Or sometimes it's as simple as going to Joey, ordering my favorite wine, ordering my favorite food, and knowing that that's going to be there. So food is definitely so important to me in nourishing my body, but nourishing sort of my mind and my soul. And it's also my favorite way to spend time with the people I love. It's my favorite way to spend time with my family is over food. It's my favorite way to spend time with my partner is over food. And whether that be, you know, somebody else is cooking or at a restaurant, um, you know, whatever experience you need in that moment. But growing up every Saturday night, we had dinner either at our house with our family friends or at somebody else's house. And instead of saying grace, my family and our friends, our family friends, we would hold hands around the table and throw our hands in the air and shout, together! And I still love that. And I that food is just such an important part of who I am and connecting with the people I love. That's wonderful. It's because it really is all community, isn't it? Exactly. And, and I've said this before on the show. I think whatever the field of endeavor is, for you and me, it's food, a little bit law, I suppose. Um, for other people, it can be whatever you're into, knitting or horse racing. But at the end, it's it's human connection, I think. Exactly. It's all about connection. Yeah. Tell us about the Thanksgiving dinner you hosted recently, because and yeah. in particular, I'm keen for your thoughts on 
food preferences? <laughs> That's a great question. So, um, so this year uh, I hosted Thanksgiving for my family, and I did a vegan Thanksgiving. So I'm not a vegan. Um, nobody in my family is a vegan, but. My aunt and uncle are pescatarian, so they only eat, um, like, fish, seafood. My mom is allergic to dairy. And my partner eats vegetarian three days a week. As a, uh, so he, uh, my, my partner, his family is Sikh, and so that's a little bit of his sort of cultural background is three days a week he eats uh, vegetarian, so three days a week we eat vegetarian, um, but not a hundred percent vegan. And so this year, the day we were doing Thanksgiving fell on one of the vegetarian days, and we were having my pescatarian aunt and uncle over and my dairy-free mom. And I thought, let's go vegan. And uh, you know, you, you just need a gluten allergy and a and, and, a, and a nut exa- restriction, exa- and you're there exactly. Like it was, you know, it, it was definitely. Um, I, I kind of liked the challenge and I wanted to see if I could do it. And, you know, without going full vegan, we, uh, we have been paying attention a lot to sustainability issues with regard to the consumption of meat. So it was also an extra sort of bonus to do that for Thanksgiving. And I have a particular personal obsession with uh, Jillian Harris, who is a, uh, she's a blogger. She was the bachelorette uh, many years ago. She's an I would essentially categorize her as an influencer on Instagram, but I have a particular love for her. And she came out with a cookbook this year with her cousin. And the cookbook is called Fresh, as in like F-R-A-C-H-E. Like fresh fresh in French? Exactly. Fresh food, full hearts. And 75% of the recipes are vegan. And one of the things she did this year was how to do a fully vegan Thanksgiving. So I followed the recipes. It involved a lot of cashews. So if somebody in my family had a nut allergy, that would be a no-go. But yeah, I did an entire vegan Thanksgiving dinner. The prep was about nine hours. I bet. Uh, I couldn't use my right hand the next day from the amount of chopping. Uh, That shows you how much of a terrible uh, back-of-house employee I would be. But it was great. The purpose was to make sure I had those Thanksgiving flavors of sage and thyme and sort of that savory umami gravy flavor, which I was able to accomplish with those herbs and a lot of mushrooms and cashew cream and long roasting. And everybody said they liked it, so I hope that everybody was happy with it. But it was really fun. Okay, so moving toward the end of our discussion, but I want to get some more thoughts. And now your thoughts on similarities between these two worlds that we share. Mm -hmm. So we've both got a background in the culinary industry. We're both currently practicing lawyers. Your thoughts. Do, Do you see any similarities? I've heard you ask this question a couple of times in the podcast, and I love this question. One thing that really stands out to me in, I'm going to say in the back of house world and the the law world, so not front of house, but if you look at the culinary world, particularly around developing your career as a chef and the legal world, there's not a lot of women. There are women, but they're a minority in both professions. And so I think that is something that I see and there's a lot of theories as to why in law, um, you know, you don't see a lot of um, as many female partners or as many longtime female lawyers. I don't really know a lot of the background about why you don't see as many female head chefs 
or why it's a rarity when you see somebody like Andrea Carlson. She is, you know, a minority in the group of of chefs in the world. And so I definitely see that as a similarity. And so I wonder about the culture of those two um, industries and, you know, what can happen in the, in that culture. And I guess that's a bit of a, a negative similarity to, to first outline. Uh, but it's definitely something I see. It's just yeah. it, visibly, yeah, that's the reality. It, yeah, it's just a visible fact. It's interesting. I, I think for probably any number of reasons, I'm somewhat blinded to that. But... In large part, I, th- I think, I hope, for a good reason, which is that Andrea has always been my primary mentor, right? So for me, when I think of a chef, I think of a woman. But you're right. Statistically, that is just plain unusual. Yeah, statistically speaking, it's unusual. And so I definitely noticed that. And, you know, full disclosure, as a female lawyer, you know, I definitely notice when there are not as many female lawyers in my profession, but also to say it's definitely gotten better. Um, I see it getting better. Um, you know, working in government is pretty spectacular to see the number of, um, you know, female leaders in our profession, which is really great. And so I don't know too much about the culinary world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say when I talk about um, Andrea Carlson with some of my chef friends, they always categorize her as like, a very cool badass. So, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I really, I, I like that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. But the numbers still paint a pretty stark picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think that's also indicative of the lifestyle that comes with uh, being a lawyer. The hours that are often required, um, and same as a chef, the hours that are often required, and um, statistically that can just be a lot more difficult for females to to be able to balance those those situations you know and that speaks to society at large which i won't get into but that's definitely there but i would say on the positive note one of the things i love about the restaurant industry and the legal industry is the best in both in in both of those fields are people with a spectacular amount of care and those are people that I love getting to know and I love to build relationships with. Um, I think to be a really successful chef or a really successful um, front of house staff, you have to have a spectacular amount of care to providing and producing something great. And that requires time and effort and energy and not necessarily for a particular individual, but just because, just to create something beautiful. And similarly, in the legal world, sometimes you are fighting battles um, that are not necessarily winnable or won't necessarily create a large amount of achievement, but they matter. And you have to put care and time and effort and energy into those things to produce a good quality of work. And so there's sacrifice in both of those things for something outside of yourself. And I have a lot of respect for people that do those things. And I feel really honored to meet people in both professions who do that. Who actually give a damn. That's a great... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, that level of care is, you know, it's it's a spectrum. And when you see it on a high level in in both of the professions, the result is tremendous. Okay, Jeannie, before we go, before we wrap it up, given that you are... 
remain a passionate supporter of the food industry and someone really interested in food. You've worked in the industry. I'm curious for any tips, insights, thoughts you have on places to go. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Please share. So, I, I mean, I have a lot of favorites, but I'll, I'll list a couple of my top Vancouver favorites that I think everybody should check out. So, uh, I'm a big sushi lover, and I like... Um, I really like sashimi. I like to eat the the raw, traditional, just raw fish. There is a sushi restaurant on Robson and Jervis called Miko. Not to be confused with Miku. Not Miku. to be confused with Miku, which yes. is in our former law firm's building. Exactly. Yeah. So Miko, so M-I-K-O, is a 10-table, very small restaurant. Even if you want to have a seat at the bar for one person, I recommend making a reservation hands down the best sushi I've had in Vancouver. Wow. Hands down. Wonderful. Okay. Very, very good. Okay. I would also highly recommend, speaking of raw food, going to Chewy's at Great Oyster Bar, but right now seasonally, order a freshly shucked scallop, put a squeeze of lemon and a bit of freshly cracked pepper. Life-changing. I would also recommend going to Fable uh, in Kitsilano. And seat, sitting at the bar where the uh, the food is plated, so it's an open kitchen restaurant. I think you you must have been to Fable before. No, you know what's crazy? I haven't. Oh but my goodness! I I cooked there way back in the day. Not there, but when it was uh, fuel, oh, fuel and refuel. Okay. Yeah. So now Fable, they have there's um, some bar seats. Um, at the open kitchen. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can picture them, yeah. And if you're lucky and you make a little bit of a rapport with the plating Sue, they'll throw a little extra oh, on there. Okay. So they'll take care of you. They'll take care <laughs> of you. So I'd highly recommend Fable. And I would also recommend, I only recently went here for the first time, about a month ago, um, Acorn on Main Street, which is a vegetarian restaurant. But again, similar to how I described my experience at Basalt and Whistler, it was perfect from start to finish. Service, food, the type of experience, um, the chef's menu, cocktails, they were spectacular. Yeah. So I would highly recommend Acorn. Wonderful. Have you gone to Arbor, which is just down the street? Uh, I have same, not. Same owners. They have um, a crispy artichoke sandwich that is incredibly tasty. That sounds so, really yeah, yummy. Really, really good. Far tastier than any veggie sandwich has a right to be. It really is great. That's awesome. Um, and I know I, that you went here for your birthday. Yes. A big birthday. I won't say more than that. Uh, you may if you wish, of course. Yeah. But Burdock, what was your experience like there? Burdock & Co. was great. And so uh, I actually went to Burdock for my, I will say, my 30th birthday. Um, this year because, because of living, listening to Chef Timoni, actually. Um, I heard about uh, the restaurant. I listened to your interview with um, Andrew Carlson. I loved what the restaurant was doing with regard to sustainability, where they were sourcing their food, where they were sourcing their wine. I'm a big wine fan. And so I went there for my, my 30th birthday with my partner and my family, and we just did a spectacular tasting menu and shared everything and had bottles of the uh, Evolve Bubbly, uh, which is from Naramata, which is a place. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, um, I, it's, it's Bella Winery in mm-hmm. uh, Naramata. They only do their bubbles. They only do bubbles. If you go there anytime past 
the beginning of June and you want to buy wine, you're kind of out of luck. They will sell out. Uh, but I highly recommend going there. I love the Naramata bench. And we just had a beautiful dinner there. Our server was great. Um, I always love a small restaurant. The food was spectacular. There was one dish. I'm going to forget what it was called. But it was like like a raviolo. And it had um, like a quail's egg yolk in it. Mm. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Oh, and there were spot prawns. Oh, the spot prawns. It, in, it was in season. Oh, man, it was so good. We it, really need a video of this so you can see Jeannie's face <laughs> as she's describing this meal. I'm not sure the audio will do it justice. <laughs> it was it was spectacular. Burdock is... Um, I actually want to buy the cookbook and see if I can pull off some of the recipes that they have in the cookbook. I'm not sure if I'm quite that talented, but I'm going to give it a go. Wonderful. Well, listen, Jeannie, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm going to put a link to your mom's published organic gardening, gardening calendar. Yeah. And I'm hoping your mom may yes. have a website on that sometime in the future. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. We will stay tuned. This has been wonderful to meet you. Thanks so much for being on the show. You as well, Graham. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jeannie, for taking the time to meet up and for sharing so many terrific food stories. It was a really fun talk. All right, looking ahead, next week is going to be my interview, as I said, with Chef Andrea Carlson about her new cookbook, and that is also going to be the season finale episode. That will be the end of season two of Chef Demoni. And then we here at Chef Demoni Productions will be taking a little break for the holidays, but I will return in January with the start of season three of the show. I'm really looking forward to getting that started. A favor, I've asked this repeatedly in the past, and I'm going to continue to ask it. Please take the time, if you would like, to leave a star rating for Chef Demoni. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or many of the other podcast apps and directories. If you've got a few more minutes, I would really appreciate you leaving a written review for the show. Doing either or both of those things really does help other people to find Chef Demoni. As always, I love to hear from you. It's one of the very best things about doing this podcast. So if you've got a question or a comment for the show, maybe you've got a topic suggestion or you know a chef or a lawyer or you are a chef or a lawyer who's got a connection to the food scene, please just get in touch. I would love to hear from you. You can message me on social media, so Instagram, Facebook, and now Twitter, or just send me an email to graham at cheftimony.com. All right, thanks very much for joining me again today. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you next Friday, right here on Chef Demonio.